Pastor Xavier Reese and the simple truths of God's healing hand. The kingdom is divided at this point still, but David is resting in God. Easy lessons, real simple lessons. When things aren't going the way you want them and you seem divided, rest in God. You strive to put things together, they'll always be fractured. You let God put them together, man, they're like crazy glue. They'll never fall apart again. He puts them together. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. The death of an enemy would typically be received as good news in most war stories. However, when word got out of Jonathan and King Saul's death, David, on the other hand, genuinely mourned God's anointed and lamented that the mighty had fallen. And since Saul's death meant that David was now able to assume the throne as king, we'll see that his first order of business was to seek God for guidance in reigning over the divided kingdom. Let's join Pastor Xavier now, continuing our character study of David in today's Simple Truth Study. In our opening study of David, I stated that there were three basic areas that I was going to divide David into in order to study him. Uh, we have seen David through the first two, David the man and David the man in exile. Now we will begin the third and last category, David, the man anointed king. Now, within this category, we're going to look at three things. First, David's rise to the throne from chapter 1 to chapter 6 of 2 Samuel. David's rule on the throne from chapter 7 to 14. And David's flight from and return to the throne from chapter 15 to 24. So uh, we're going to divide 2 Samuel into those three parts, and it'll give us a good perspective of David. Now, for our study, we want to take the first, David's rise to the throne, which reveals three things to us. First, David's character. Second, David's covenant. And thirdly, David's coronation. Let's begin with David's character. Here in 2 Samuel chapter 1, David had just returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites the third day. And here's this man. He comes, he prostrates himself, and uh, he's demonstrating grief, mourning to an extent. And notice the man David, as he sees this man, he makes inquiry as to who he was from verse 3 down to 10. He told David he had escaped from the camp of Israel. In verse 4, he told David that Saul and Jonathan were both dead. And in verse 5, he was asked as to the certainty of this matter he had just uttered to David. Then the young man who told him said, As I happened the chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on a spear. And indeed the chariots and the horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. The account is given to us also, the last chapter of First Samuel, chapter 31, 
verse 3 through 5. It would seem to support his story in as far as Saul had been injured by the archers and wanted his armor bearer to kill him. That's the perspective at the end of 1 Samuel. So as not to be tortured by the Philistines. And when his armor bearer refused, he fell on his own sword and then likewise his armor bearer. Often people have a difficult time with the last chapter of 1 Samuel and the first chapter of 2 Samuel. And they say, which is true? I don't find any contradiction or problem. The end of 1 Samuel 31 tells you what took place. And then in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, he is telling you what happened after the fact of what took place at the end of 1 Samuel. It's a compliment. Now, if what the young man is saying here in this chapter of 2 Samuel is a lie, then we're going to see that he died for a lie. <laughs> but we don't know that. So you have one of two options. Either you believe he's lying or he's filling in the blanks. Since nothing indicates that he's lying in the scripture, I have to assume that he's telling the truth. It fills in the holes of the last chapter of 1 Samuel. Now, assuming that this is true in verse 10, he says, So I stood over him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and I brought them here to my Lord. You know how David felt about Saul. He knew he was his enemy, but he also knew that God would be the one to defend him. He would not touch God's anointed. The man, David, responded to the words of the Amalekite in verses 11 through 18. He and all the men of Israel tore their clothes and mourned till the evening, first of all. As they heard the story. In verse 13, he asked the young man where he was from. He says, I am the son of an alien and a Malachite. In verse 13, he asked the young man how it was that he did not fear to put his hand forth and destroy God's anointed. And so, he ordered another young man to strike and kill the Amalekite, declaring that his own words had testified against him. In verse 15, notice David did not move rashly nor impulsively at the hearing of the account. That's good. Don't miss that. The minute that young man was telling the story, David could have just taken his head off. He heard the story. He mourned. Thought about it. Once his grief, his anger, then he dealt with, with a level head. Oh, how much pain we can save ourselves if we deal with things after our anger, not during it. That we don't deal with decisions impulsively or emotionally. Because once we do or say it's too late, you can't undo and you cannot take words back. Little thing right here, little lesson for us. Notice he allows time to pass, lamenting and weeping, and then he acts rationally and justly. Good lesson for us. When you get to verse 17 on down to 27... And David lamented Saul and Jonathan and commanded Judah to be taught the song of the bow, which Jonathan was apparently uh, very good at. David declared Saul and Jonathan to be the beauty and mighty of Israel, despite Saul's injustices towards him. David's not being moved by bitterness or by anger anymore, by animosity. He's mourning genuinely here. 
in verse 20, he declared that the, the tragedy be kept silent, lest the enemy's daughters rejoice over it in verse 20. He declares a sort of curse on the mountains of Gilboa in verse 21 and 22 for being the site of their death. Verse 23, he declared both to be pleasant in life and undivided even at their death as swift eagles and strong lions. Verse 24, he commands the daughters of Israel to weep over Saul, who clothed her in scarlet luxury and ornaments of gold. So he attributes a lot of Israel's prosperity to Saul himself. Verse 25, he acknowledges the fallen as mighty. Verse 26, he declares his distress of Jonathan, who was pleasant to him, and his love, wonderful, surpassing the love of a woman. What an incredible declaration. There are those who are so depraved and so perverted, who would insinuate that what David is describing here is a homosexual relationship between Jonathan and himself. I utterly reject that. David is declaring to us and showing to us men that there is such a sweet fellowship that is available and very capable and very probable between men in the Lord that we can never accomplish apart from the Lord. Verse 27, he closes his lamentation and lamentable eulogy here with the loss of two mighty men and weapons of war. They were brave soldiers, God's soldiers. What an incredible Eulogy. Now notice, secondly, when you get to chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, here we have David patiently waited for God to establish him on his throne. That is so important. Verse 1 says, It happened after this that David inquired the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David says, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So, he inquires of the Lord, and the Lord tells him exactly where to go. What a lesson. So basic, so simple. Why am I here in Pasadena? Because God brought me here. I know He did. Why did I start a Bible study in Alhambra? Because God took me. I know He did. If God hadn't sent me to Alhambra, I'd never go there. It is amazing what you will like once you know God's in it. <laughs> it makes all the difference in the world. In verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2, He took His two wives and all the men who were with Him, as well as their families, and in verse 4, he then was anointed king over the house of Judah, it says. He was also told of the kindness of the men of Jabesh Gilead who recovered Saul and Jonathan's body, and they buried them. Now, what's David's response? Look at verse 5 through 7. He returned a blessing upon them by God for their loyalty and kindness and told them of his kingship over Judah. He said, thanks a lot. I appreciate what you did. I mean, he could have said, you know, why did you guys do that for? He's my enemy. David commended them. He, he, he blessed them. The Lord will bless you for that. But notice verses 8 down to 11. He still had one more obstacle. Abner. Saul's general had set up the son of Saul and made him king over Gilead. In verse 10, Saul's son's name was Ishbosheth, and he was 40 years old. Ishbosheth had reigned for two years over Israel, verse 10 says, for the house of Judah followed David. And in verse 11, he, David, reigned over Judah as king in Hebron for seven years and six months. So the kingdom is divided at this point still. But David is resting in God. 
Easy lessons, real simple lessons. When, when things aren't going the way you want them and you seem divided, rest in God. You strive to put things together, they'll always be fractured. You let God put them together, man, they're like crazy glue. They'll never fall apart again. He puts them together. When you get to verse 12 of chapter 2, all the way to chapter 3, verse 5, you have David's painful war that moved on continuously with the house of Saul through General Abner and through the house of David. In verse 12 through 17, Abner and Joab, which were the two opposing generals, each met with their army there at Gibeon and I guess they used to play this game a dozen from each side, grabbed each other by the hair and the beard and grabbed the sword and thrust them through and all 24 died. Doesn't sound too much fun to me, but you know. Then verses 18 through 23, the battle broke out among all of them once that happened and Asiel, one of the brothers of Joab, verses 18 through 23, who was very fast, pursued Abner and Abner kept saying, listen, are you the, the, the brother of Joab? Yeah, yeah, he, look, turn the left, turn the right. Don't follow me. Why, why would I want to thrust you through? So he's telling this guy, get off my back or I'm going to kill you. But you know, young, cocky, what do you mean you're going to kill me, old man? Okay. He thrust him through. Abner regathers his men and makes a stand on top of the hill in verses 24 through 26. And from there he yells out to Joab and says, this is senseless killing of each other. And so in verse 27 to 29, Joab in his reluctance, he agrees and he sounds a retreat and ceases the battle. Verse 27, Joab said, As God lives, unless you had spoken, surely then by morning all the people would have given up pursuing their brother. And haven't you ever found that out? That if you never rest in God, if you're always, fighting never ends. It goes on and on and on. Listen to me. People can only fight if you both get in each other's faces, argue, whatever it is. And I was studying David, and I think I told you, and, and where Saul was throwing spears at David, right? And I'm reading the past, and I'm studying, and you know, here I am, you know, great pastor, and I'm going to teach his lessons. And God says, when people throw spears at you, don't throw them back. Whoa. <laughs> Remove yourself, that's all. Just get out of the way. Remove yourself. Don't stay in front of the people. Just get away from them. I'll take care of it. I'll take care of them. You stay blameless. That's great. But what it attacks is our pride, right? We have to humble ourselves. The price was heavy. Verse 30 and 31 tells us that Joab, David's general, lost 19 men plus Asiel. But Abner lost 360 men. Senseless. How many people are destroyed in families and friendships and everything else? And you know, sometimes try as you may, no matter what you attempt to do, some people just, you can't live peaceable with them. You know, the Bible says we're to do everything in our power to live peaceable with all men. But once I've done everything I can and, and, and it's just impossible, then I just bow out. I just bow out. I don't have that much time left and I certainly don't want to spend it arguing or being all uptight. <laughs> you know, it doesn't, it's just not worth it to me. There's wisdom. You just bow out. No big deal. So they picked up Aziel, buried him, returned to Hebron at daybreak in verse 32. And then when you get to chapter 3, verse 1, the war between them was long and grievous, but David's house grew stronger, it says. And then from verses 2 to 5 there, chapter 3, 
there were six sons born to David at Hebron during those years. Remember, he had two wives. And that wasn't all. We're going to see later on. George Washington said, Associate yourself with men of good quality if you esteem your own reputation. For tis better to be alone than in bad company. It is much better to be alone than to be in bad company. Separate yourself. Now, there are some people that are going to call you self-righteous. You have to make sure that you're not separating because you're self-righteous. If you are, shame on you. But if you're separating yourself because of the bad company, then God bless you. Get away from them. If they're not willing to be stretched in the Lord and they want to drag you down, and move on. Pray for them, but move on. David's character was without reproach. Now we know that it's not constant. We've seen him blow in a couple other studies, right? <laughs> and he'll do it again. But to this point, man, he's waited upon God. God has brought the kingdom together. Don't try to bring everything to control in your life. For you to bring it, to, let God take care of it. Let him do it. You'll only mess it up and it will take twice as long. Let him do it. Now secondly, you have David's covenant. We get this in chapter 3, verse 6, on down to chapter 4, verse 12. Notice first in chapter 3, verse 6 through 21, Abner initiated the covenant to unite Judah and Israel. In verse 6 and 7, the occasion was war, uh, still between the two houses. And when Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul, and Ishbosheth asked Abner why he had gone in sexually to his father's concubine, Rizbah. He didn't take too good a liking to that. You remember that uh, Solomon's brother, who tried to usurp the kingdom while David was dying, and Solomon pardoned him, but afterwards he asked for Abishag as his wife, the virgin who had laid to keep David warm. He didn't have sex with her. She is just keeping him warm, but he asked for her hand in marriage, and Solomon tells Bathsheba, what would more would he want in the kingdom? Bring him here. He's dead. Same thing here. The response of Abner in verses 8 through 10 was violent, lashing out against his ungratefulness to charge him with such a fault concerning this woman, he says, and threatened to deliver the kingdom to David as God had done already regarding Judah. Now, you can get the sense in verse 11, Ishbosheth just said nothing because he feared Abner. Uh, this guy's an older man. He's general. He's a warrior. Ishbosheth, he's young. The kingdom's divided. He's not a real strong man. And so in verses 12 and 13, Abner sent messengers to David to make a covenant with him and to bring all of Israel with him, to which David replied, God would make a covenant with him, but one requirement was necessary, that he bring with him his wife Michael, the daughter of Saul. Remember, Saul had given her away and married someone else. Now, she was quite a cookie. She was a very... Um, a difficult woman. And it is amazing how people get hooked up with difficult people, don't they? And they just can't seem to break away. Women who get beat for years. Uh, and they can't seem to break away. Sometimes because they're just fearful. Certainly fear is involved. And then there's a small percentage that just won't leave because they really love the individual and they don't want to leave them. And it's hard to understand that. But he wanted her back. That's the condition. In verses 14 through 16, David sent messengers to Ishbosheth to return his wife, and her husband accompanied her till Buharim, weeping behind her. Then he was commanded to return. How horrible. Look at all the injustice of man. 
I mean, Saul gave her away. He shouldn't have. So that hurt David tremendously. Now all of a sudden, she's married to this other guy. David's king. He's got two wives already. This guy is happy. He's the only wife he has. And he takes her from him. Look at the pain that comes into his life. I mean, sin just compounds one to another. Does it not? What a sad affair of torn lives and suffering due to man's abuse of power on both Saul's part and on David's part. In verses 17 through 21, Abner then spoke to the elders of Israel, Benjamin, and last to David to unify the kingdom, to which David celebrated with a feast and sent Abner away in peace to finalize the covenant. So the deal is set. The covenant has been made. Israel and Judah are going to come back together. Now the motive wasn't very honorable, was it? He did it to spite Ishbosheth, right? He says, "Oh, really? I'll, I'll take care of you." Notice, secondly, when you get to chapter three, verse twenty-two, down to thirty, Abner is killed by Joab, marring the covenant. Joab, returning from a raid, was told of Abner's visit and also of his departure in peace. Now you remember, Abner killed Joab's younger brother. He hasn't forgotten. 24 and 25, Joab entered in anger to David, asking him what he had done, that he had come to deceive David, in fact, and to spy him out. What are you doing? Joab, leaving David's presence, he sent messengers to recall Abner's presence without David's knowledge. And when Abner arrived, he took him aside to the gate to speak private with him, and he killed him. Now, here's a perfect example of what takes place many times in Christian circles, is you have people, and, and, there's, and there's authority, and there's power, but someone just takes a little more power and authority than they think they have, and they do things they have no right to do. And they jeopardize, destroy, and mar the work of God. For personal reasons, for personal benefit, or for personal vengeance, or whatever it may be. David cleared himself and his kingdom of the treacherous deed. He says, after when David heard it, he said, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner and the son of Ner. David says, listen, I am innocent of this. He could not afford it. God was doing an incredible work. And so verse 29, David points the guilt on the house of Joab and proclaims a curse on his descendants. This guy's been with him all his life. Listen, why? Because it's righteous judgment. You dare not, you cannot cover up people who are treacherous, no matter if they call themselves Christians. I always told my children, I tell them today, I'm your father, I love you, I'm there always to forgive you, to restore you, but I will not be one with your sin. I will not be one with your sin or anybody else's. The only way you're to cover somebody else's sin is when they ask you forgiveness and you forgive it, you bury it, and you don't announce it. Love covers a multitude of sins. Sins against you and they ask you forgiveness. You cover them and you drop them. He's not talking about covering somebody's sin who's openly and rebelliously hurting others. No, we do not cover those individuals. And God help us if we do. Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. Simple truths we see unfolding in both the house and kingdom of David's rule, as Pastor Xavier Reese draws our time together to a close. 
And you can hear this message again anytime online by simply selecting today's date at the radio listings link you'll find at calvarychapelpasadena.com. But there's much more to come of this character study right here next time as well. Now, if your schedule won't permit you to tune in, though, you can pick up your own personal copy of this message. The title to ask for is simply David Part 5. It's available on CD for only $4. So once again, the title to ask for is David Part 5, or simply mention today's date. You can request your copy by writing Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And please help us by including the call letters of this station somewhere in your correspondence. This is helpful when we check on the impact of this outreach in your area. Scripture says promotion doesn't come from the East or the West, but from God Himself. Join Pastor Xavier Reese as he recounts David's rise to the throne, next time on Simple Truths. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California www.calvarychapelpasadena.com